Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. You ready, girl? Oh, I'm ready for this, girl. So uh, hit me with it. What, what you got for me today? Oh, I got you. I got a story that takes place on August 1st, 1999. All right. I know it well. All right. <laughs> <laughs> a familiar day for all of us. No, no, I was just kidding. All right. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to confuse I, anyone. An like expert how- on August 1st, 1990. I don't think anyone was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I didn't know. All right. So August 1st, 1999 was a sweltering hot summer day in Springfield, Illinois. As you know, Ashley. Right. I would know. You I would, would know that. You would know as the expert. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I should mention that a ton of my information that I got for today's episode is from episode one of Unusual Suspects, Deadly Intent. It's very, very good. The Parkway Point movie theater was like the place to be on those type of days. We all know it. Like, remember summers as a kid? Oh, yeah. That if it was above 99, you know, whatever, 100 yeah. degrees, you were at the movie theater at that air conditioning. For sure. The AC, dark space, it just gave a reprieve to moviegoers on a hot, sweltering day. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. like to say that sentence. A woman parked her car in the lot around 4 p.m. So that she could go inside and buy a ticket when she heard a baby screaming on the top of her lungs. The desperate screams were coming from another parked car, a white Jeep with no adults in sight. The woman noticed that the baby was uh, in their car seat with a thermal blanket partially covering her. Oh my God. The front two windows were rolled down, but the back two were not. At the same time, the movie theater manager was just happened to be taking a cigarette break um, when he heard the screeching screams. So everyone's running over to this car. It is incredibly dangerous for a child to be left in a car at any time, but especially during the summer. The average car is 43 degrees warmer than the outside temperature. Wow, I didn't know that. It's Oh, I was my, my mind was blown. So studies show that on a 90 degree day, it can get up to 138 degrees inside of a car. Wow. And this, so this baby is in there yeah. with, a, with a blanket covering her. A thermal blanket. A thermal blanket. And 138 degrees is actually hotter than the hottest outdoor temperature that has ever been recorded on Earth. Uh-huh. The woman begins to panic. Uh, She knew that this was a time-sensitive situation and she needed to rescue this baby immediately. Luckily, all of the doors were unlocked in the vehicle, so she was able to climb in and get the baby out easily. Everyone assumed that the parents of the baby must have left their child in the car while they went inside to watch a movie, or perhaps they went into the gas station or like some other nearby business. But when nobody came back to the car, and the police arrived, it was clear that something terrible clearly had happened. Springfield detective Patrick Ross saw that there was blood inside of the car, blood on the bumper, and a 38 caliber bullet casing. A purse had been dumped out on the passenger side and the wallet was visible with money still inside, so this was not a robbery. Officers quickly questioned anyone that was in the parking lot and asked that they call the police station if they had seen anything suspicious. The baby girl was handed over to the Child Protective Services and law enforcement was desperate to find out who the parents were. There happened to be tons of security cameras in the movie theater parking lots, like a dozen or so. But the camera facing the abandoned Jeep happened to be broken and no footage was stored from the day of the attack. God, 
I hate that. I yeah, hate but eleven of the twelve parking lot cameras were working. Oh, okay. just not the one that would have supplied the critical evidence. Wow, just oh my gosh, coincidental, huh? Detectives ran the plates and discovered that the car belonged to Brad and Lori Hayes, a married couple, both twenty-six years old. The couple lived in Springfield in a home that was just 15 minutes from where the car and the baby were abandoned. When police officers went by to do a wellness check, no one answered the door. After a few hours, surveillance saw that Brad Hayes pulled up to the home. He had just gotten back from a business trip in Denver, and before heading home to see his family, he went straight to a softball game in town. He was still wearing his uniform, and he was still holding his bat. The detective asked him about the last time that he saw his wife. Brad seemed confused and he was in shock. He had no idea what was going on and he was very alarmed when he heard that the car had been abandoned in a parking lot. With his baby. With his baby inside. The the detective then assured him that their baby Alexis was safe and that she was currently with CPS. Meanwhile, authorities have notified Lori's family that she is missing. Lori's sister drove six hours from Kentucky to Springfield. She told the police that their mom, Connie, had actually been with Lori and the baby that morning that she went missing. Lori had a doctor's appointment, and because Brad was away on business, Connie agreed to watch Alexis. Before Connie headed home that day, she recalled that Lori had mentioned that she was planning on going shopping for shoes later. A citywide search began less than 24 hours after her disappearance, which is actually pretty uncommon. Yeah, it's like you have to wait. Very uncommon. Sheriff Deputy Robert Steele was one of many patrol cars to scour the surrounding farm country. He parked his car at the edge of a cornfield when he noticed the fresh car tracks. The tracks seemed to be driving straight into the field. The height of corn stalks would actually be an ideal place for someone to commit a crime without anyone seeing. On foot, Deputy Steele followed the tracks. After going about 70 feet into the cornfield, he discovered a body. There are thousands and thousands of acres of cornfields in the area. So the fact that he was able to make this discovery was remarkably lucky. Yeah. This like they're not even 24 hours in. And this one man drives to this one particular cornfield, gets out in the exact spot, sees footprints or sees fresh tracks and decides to go the exact 70 feet into the field. Yeah. Everything about that, like my skin just like started crawling when I read that. Based off of the photos that were used for her missing person report, he was able to determine that the body belonged to Lori Hayes. There were two distinct lines in the dirt from where her legs had been dragging through the dirt, as if like someone had was holding her by the armpits oh, and then dragging okay. her. Okay. The lines were straight and consistent, implying that there was not a struggle. She must have been unconscious or already dead when she was brought to the field and left there. There was a gunshot wound in the back of her head, and authorities assumed that the 38 caliber bullet casing that was found in her car was used on her. Her wedding ring was still on her finger. The presence of the ring, as well as her wallet being left full of cash in the car, quickly eliminated the possibility that this was a robbery gone bad. The autopsy report showed that semen was present. Lori Hayes had always dreamed of being a mother. She knew from a very young age that having children was her calling. Her family described her as ambitious and cheerful, and she was an incredible mother to her baby. Her husband, Brad, was an attentive husband and father. They were happy, or at least they appeared to be. 
detectives began to question friends and family about their relationship. The general consensus was that things hadn't been going well since Alexis was born. Things were tense and Brad appeared annoyed with his wife. Brad stated that yes, they fought, but what married couple doesn't? 50 or 60 tips were called in immediately after the Springfield Police Department went public with the details of Lori's homicide. One man had been at the shopping center the day Lori was shot. He recalled seeing a man driving the white Jeep. He was Caucasian and he was wearing a baseball hat. Detective Tim Young was working on the case when he started putting together some odd similarities between Lori's murder and a case that had taken place three miles outside of Springfield. 18-year-old Melissa Kuntz was discovered hidden in a cornfield after being missing for a week. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered as well. Not only did the two women look very similar, Melissa was last seen in the parking lot of a grocery store in broad daylight. Like Lori, her car was found unlocked with all of her belongings inside. The women were attacked only a few miles apart. The murders took place 10 years apart, but the similarities were unmistakable. Suddenly, detectives are potentially searching for a serial killer. This lead quickly came to a dead end when it was discovered that the men convicted of murdering Melissa Kuntz were currently serving their sentence and would have had no way of killing Lori. The results for the DNA test done on the sperm found on Lori's body were shocking, well, like at least to me. Uh, the semen did not match Lori's husband, Brad. He was officially eliminated as a suspect. Baby Alexis could now safely leave CPS and go back home to her father. And I, I, I say I was shocked because like when I heard the baseball hat and he was Caucasian and everything like that. And I, know, then, I was going to say, Brad, did he also have a bat with him? And yes, a softball yeah, uniform? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I can't even imagine finding out that your wife has been brutally assaulted and murdered and then not being able to see your baby because you're a suspect. Yeah. And like, God knows how long that would take to eliminate him. Yeah, yeah. The semen matched a sample that was taken from another case that had gone cold. In November of 1998, a man had called up a real estate agent and asked that she set up a few showings. She said, of course, and even offered to give her client a ride to the appointments that she had scheduled for him. He seemed totally normal at first, and the conversation was pretty standard. When they walked inside one of the houses, the man suddenly pressed a gun to the back of her head. He slid his hand down her body and removed the mace that was tucked away in her pocket a weapon that was meant to protect her from men just like him. He told her that she would need to follow his every order. She was directed to sit down and to remove all of her clothing. The man said that he was going to take pictures of her and she was to pose exactly how he told her to pose. After she was assaulted, they got dressed. As they were walking out the front door, she followed behind him quickly slamming the front door shut so that she could lock it. She screamed at the top of her lungs and the neighbors were able to call for help. By the time authorities arrived, the man fled the scene. So now it's years later and detectives have matching semen samples. They know that if they crack one, they crack the other. They opened a sexual assault case back up and took a look with fresh eyes. Another realtor had reported a disturbing encounter with a man just days before the other agent had been assaulted. She stated that a man came to her open house and he had an incredibly calm demeanor. When they were alone, he locked the front door and proceeded to frisk her. 
As he was doing so, he felt that she had a cell phone in her pocket. He removed her phone and he took it. This woman was very lucky because she was able to escape before being sexually assaulted. She was able to like somehow slink out. Okay. She gave a physical description and she recalled that this man had left her a voicemail. She's an agent, so her phone number can be found on park benches and other advertisements. She told the detectives that she would do her very best to find this voicemail. While a sketch was being put together using the agent's description, they waited for her to find that voicemail. This was key because they could put this poster out and tons of people could be reported, so matching a voice would be extra helpful for the public. Yeah, definitely. One day, a light bulb goes off in Detective Ross's mind. He found it strange that all the women report their attacker having an alarmingly calm demeanor while he frisked them and removed their phones or any possible weapons. Detective Ross realized that there was a very strong possibility that this man worked in law enforcement. Yeah. He just knew exactly what to do. Yeah. Not only does a police officer know how to keep calm during a stressful encounter, they would have inside information and know how to get away with the crime. Yeah. Plus, if a police officer had in fact attacked Lynn and Melissa, they could very well have been pulled over or approached by a man in uniform. Mm -hmm. And your guard would be down because this is someone who is supposed to just keep the community safe, keep you safe. Detective Ross knew that he needed to take a closer look at Deputy Robert Steele, the man that had discovered Lynn's body in the cornfield. Not only was it absolutely insane that this man was able to locate Lynn's body so quickly, 60 or 70 feet into a random cornfield. That's just bizarre. I know. Yeah, it's so specific. There are thousands of acres of cornfield in Springfield. It, it didn't feel like it a just, miracle anymore. No, it just no. felt very incriminating. Yeah. Deputy Steele had made it sound like some sort of gut instinct had guided him to that exact location. He claimed to have spotted it from the road, and it was just like this aha moment. Bullshit. I know. <laughs> Accusing a fellow police officer of sexual assault and murder is very serious and not something to be taken lightly. So Detective Ross knew that he would need to quietly build this case without any word getting back to Deputy Steele. While he was in the process of doing so, another police officer came forward with a possible lead. She had arrested a man for sexual assault and believed that he matched the physical description of the sketch. The man was named Marcus White and he would have been out of jail at the time of Lori's murder. And because solving the real estate agent's assault would mean solving Lori's, they wanted to see if she would be able to identify him. When multiple images were placed in front of the real estate agent, she immediately recognized the monster that had attacked her. That man was Marcus White. Oh my gosh. I know so many twists. (laughs) Marcus White was currently serving time at Sangamon County Jail for another sexual assault. Detectives headed to the jail and requested that he give them a DNA sample. Marcus stated that he had nothing to do with Lori's murder or the other assaults or the other assaults against the real estate agents, and providing a sample would be the only effective way to clear him. Marcus White wasn't lying. His DNA did not match and he was cleared. Unfortunately, the real estate agent incorrectly identified him as her attacker and his identity was still unknown. Wow. This was proving to be a highly complex case and detectives were growing frustrated with every suspect feeling like there's no way this isn't our guy just to come up empty handed. Yeah. One day, a woman from a local security agency decided to take things into her own hands. 
Oh, is she a Vir- <laughs> is her name Ashley? And and is, is she, she a Virgo? Virgo? Yeah. Does she have a true crime podcast? Yeah. I would do this. As soon as she saw the sketch of the suspect, one man kept coming to mind. A man named Dale Lash. He had worked for her and she believed he looked eerily similar to the sketch. She did a few borderline legal things to confirm your favorite. Again, again <laughs> something favorite. I would do. <laughs> to confirm that her hunch was correct. She asked a few of her real estate agent friends to get the name of the woman that had been sexually assaulted. And once she did, she just shows up to the woman's office with a picture of Dale Lash and asked if this was the man that attacked her. The real estate agent said, yeah, that's him. What? <laughs> It goes without saying that this is like very uncool for multiple reasons. Yeah. Showing up at her office without warning, showing her images of a man that hurt her. But also there's like a, there's a, there's a reason that law enforcement shows multiple other people when doing an identification. Right, right. Showing one person instead of a lineup is not protocol. It's very uncool. Yeah. You're not supposed to, even I know this. And she's I'll, not a Virgo. She's yeah. She's messy. And not to mention, this woman had already incorrectly identified her yeah, attacker. So yes. it's kind of, and, I'm, and she's not to blame. She's obviously like traumatized, that, yeah, but still it's like to further confuse everything. And also there's a, this woman's identity, identity, identity has not been disclosed to the public. So for her to like go around and be like, who was assaulted? Go, yeah. It's like, that's it, awful. Yeah. That's, that's really unethical. I take it back. I'm not, I wouldn't do any of that. <laughs> Okay, so then this woman goes to the police department and lets them know that not only did she recognize someone that she worked with after seeing the sketch, she had gone straight to the victim and received a positive identification. Law enforcement looked into this Dale Lash guy and found out that he had a completely clean record, but they decided, you know what, we'll interview him, we'll interview one of his ex-girlfriends anyways. If you think about it, Dale worked as a security guard, so it was very likely that he knew how to properly frisk and detain someone. Detective Ross had that strong gut feeling that their attacker worked in law enforcement. So this Dale guy was checking like all of his boxes. Yeah, yeah. The ex-girlfriend stated that Dale was nice at first. Like they all are. <laughs> uh, like everyone loved surface level Dale, but the reality was he was very dark and he was abusive. He was controlling and he had bizarre sexual fantasies that she was not okay with. I tried to figure out what they were and no one was telling me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I took things into my hands and I interviewed the ex-girlfriend. <laughs> Remember the agent that had been frisked by the man but was able to escape? Yeah. Then said she had that voicemail? Yeah. Well, she finally found it. Oh, it's about time. That's right. The voicemail was taken in as evidence. And now they just need to find someone that was familiar enough with Dale's voice to do the comparison. Detectives contact Dale's brother, Danny, even though they had a strained relationship and they were no longer in contact, which in my opinion is like the perfect guy to go to yeah, then. He's not, sure. he doesn't have any loyalty. No. When Danny listened to the voicemail, he said that without a doubt, this was his brother's voice. As law enforcement made their way to Dale Lash's residence, they made a chilling discovery. He lived only two miles from where Lori's body had been dumped in the cornfield. So when Dale was being questioned, he admitted to having sex with the real estate agent, but assured detectives that this was no rape. This was 100% consensual. And I feel like that's like step one to admitting guilt because it's like they, you know that they know that your DNA is on the scene. And so they're trying to like, they think Spin it's it. like a sly way of saying like, this explains everything, but she wanted it. It wasn't rape. At this time, they bring in some lunch and a drink for Dale. 
they basically like do this whole thing where they apologize to him for holding him so long. And they're like, oh, you must be starving. You must be so thirsty. So Dale is sipping on his drink while Detective Ross slides a picture of Lori Hayes across the table. Dale said he had no idea who this woman was, to which Detective Ross replied, well, what are you going to do if we match your DNA with what was found on the crime scene? And as he was asked this, the, another detective comes into the room and just grabs Dale's drink <laughs> and walks out of the room with it. It's like, you fell just for like it, you sl- idiot. Slowly grabbing the cup. You and- don't need this anymore. <laughs> Dale removed his glasses and started rubbing his eyes. Like you could tell he was panicking, oh. trying to think of something to say. And with his head lowered and his eyes shut, he says, I'm fucked. <laughs> okay yeah, well, it that's- <laughs> he's like damn it yeah. <laughs> these people are good yeah. dale's dna matched the dna found at the scene of the crime and he was arrested for the murder of Lori hayes so this woman like this random chick is like you guys are not getting enough stuff done i'm gonna take it in my own hands and like while i judge her method she got it done yeah she so she is me i had she's a I messy think I, virgo a messy yeah you. yeah which they don't go hand in hand. I feel like that directly contradicts itself, but you know. Yeah, but we we are out there. She's coming into her own. Yeah. When Detective Rost asked him why he did it, Dale responded, when I understand, you all understand. Okay. It's like it's shut a mystery up. to me, no, so it's going to be a mystery to you. No, I'm you know, not I, I, we, we don't up. like him for I a multitude of reasons. I hate people like that. Law enforcement believed that after attacking the real estate agent, all eyes were on that community. So it was necessary for him to like switch up his MO because he had attacked two in a you know very short amount of time. Yeah. So that's like that <laughs> the real estate community is freaking out. Of course. Instead of attending an open house, he found Lori in a shopping mall parking lot. He threatened to shoot her if she didn't comply with his demands before driving her to a secluded cornfield. He sexually assaulted her, shot her, and then dragged her body into the field. After he dumped her body, he drove the white Jeep back to the parking lot where he left the car and then, you know, her baby Alexis. He was found guilty of murder, aggravated sexual assault, aggravated kidnapping, hijacking a vehicle, and endangering the health of a child. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And then I went back and thought about that poor... (laughs) police officer that was everyone gonna, was like i'm just like shitting on the way that he's like i had this gut instinct but that is sometimes how it works and i get gut instincts all the time like that so hearing yes. someone else say that and and follow that feeling yeah. and then find something like that yeah i totally believe that that's real but the way that it was all set up i was like oh he's a lot what a murderous police officer i also am like <laughs> so hypocrite not hypocritical but sexist in the way that i'm like men don't get that <laughs> this is strictly a female power don't even pretend like you knew but like it really came down to him driving his car and he had this like there was a bad energy yeah that came from this field and he was like i have to go here well i really relate to that you can 100 percent be pulled towards it's kind of like when you're driving like when you're on a road trip or something and you see a home on the side of the street and you're like i know someone died there yeah and has nothing to do with the fact that it's abandoned and scary looking it's like you know darkness something bad happened in that location he felt that he parked in the exact spot where there was drag marks it's i mean i would see you doing this yeah absolutely something that i would do yeah because i would get that feeling i would sense it i would be all sensitive and i'd get out and just go explore and then i'd find a body and then of course people would be like oh really she just that was just coincidental (laughs) really 
And that's what happened to him. And it was funny because like in the interview, he's like, yeah, I just trusted my gut. And, you know, I guess now, haha, people thought I was guilty. And, you know, just trying to laugh <laughs> it off. <laughs> like, sweet man. <laughs> but yeah, so that is the roller coaster of a story of the tragic death of Lori Hayes and the assaults of two real estate agents. I thought for certain all of these crimes were committed by two people. Yes. And the cop was going to be one. And then this other one was. And so the fact that he's just completely innocent, it's wild to me. It's so wild. I was going to cover a different case for this episode. And then I started watching this documentary and I'm really into cases right now where they're being solved by people that have nothing to do with law enforcement. Yeah. I love that too. They're just like, this is not moving fast enough for me. Yeah. I'm irritated. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Maybe do some illegal things, yeah. but it's going to pay off. Yeah. And Trust your instincts, you guys. They typically, that usually pays off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well that's well, all I've got for you today. Thank you for doing that. You're very welcome. All right. Well, love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash shorties podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Anna Katharina.